CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we ask how champions are made. Are they born or are they built? Is nature versus nurture even a useful model for understanding human performance anymore? We look at the incredible power of focus and how it translates into championship performance. We study how Navy SEALs use a technique called drown proofing and how you can use the same strategy to conquer your own fear and perform like a champion. All of this and much more with our guest, Dr. Rowan Hooper. Do you need more time? Time for work? Time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. What happens when a prominent neuroscientist finds out there's something wrong with his own brain? 
In our previous episode, we explored the shocking discovery that our previous guest made when he realized after years of studying the brains of psychopaths that he had the exact same brain structure. We unwinded the twisted narrative and the wild conclusions that came out of his riveting discovery. All of that and much more in our previous interview with our guest, Dr. James Fallon. If you want to see inside the mind of a psychopath, listen to our last episode. Now for our interview with Rowan. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Rowan Hooper. Rowan is the managing editor of New Scientist Magazine, where he's spent more than 10 years writing about all aspects of science. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Superhuman, Life at the Extremes of Our Capacity. He worked as a biologist and a reporter in Japan, and two collections of his long-running column of for the Japan Times have been published in Japan as well. His work has also appeared in The Economist, The Guardian, Wired, The Washington Post, and much more. Rowan, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, Matt. Great to be on. Well, we're excited to have you on the show today. I'd love to start out with maybe a broad question, but but I think it gets at the essence of a lot of what you write about and talk about in Superhuman, and will give us a rich array of topics to really dig into from here. And I know this is a big question. Are champions and high performers born or are they made? <laughs> oh, man, you've gone to the like the heart of it straight away. Yeah, I mean, that's the question. We all want to know the answer. I actually think that they are made. Sorry, they're, they're born and made, but, but they're born, basically. And what I mean by that is I think to be the, the best in the world at something, you no matter what the rest of us might think and what might desire, the people who are the best in the world tend to have a genetic leg up to help them achieve their absolute greatness. And that's not to say they, you know, they can roll out of bed and, and become the best in the world. But from what we're finding in genetic studies now, it looks like there are there's there is a big genetic component to expertise and to top level um, world class success. So are they born or made? They're, they're born, but they're also made because you still have to work, 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 practice, train and do all that stuff, um, do all the nurture stuff, but you need nature as well. You know, there's a great book called The Success Equation by Michael Malbison that I read some years ago that provides a really interesting mental model that I think kind of fits into this, this explanation. And it's this idea that for any outcome, you draw from two jars. You, you draw from a luck jar and you draw from a, a skill jar. And the idea is you can get, let's say, sort of a plus five to a minus five out of either of those jars, and then that's what your result is. And what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if this is wrong, but to be at the absolute top, the world champion level, you probably typically need to draw a max sort of role from the luck jar in terms of your genetics or those kinds of abilities, but also a max role from that practice, that skill jar as well. That's right. That's that's right. I mean, and that's not to say, you know, that those who haven't got, you know, haven't lucked out on getting, a, you know, the right set of genes. And we can talk later about what that really means, because it's not it's not as simple as, say, having a gene for being a great golf player or something. Right. For those of us who don't have like the genetic endowment, that doesn't mean we, we just give up. You can still get a long way practicing a long way. Well, if we're talking about getting to be the best in the world. Then you do. You, you're right. You need to have top marks from both jars. So let's dig into that. Tell me more about the genes and, and perhaps even getting into epigenetics and how that works and how it's not as simple as it may seem. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think perhaps about 
20 years ago, 10 years ago, when we just started sequencing the human genome and thinking about all these things in more detail, geneticists tended to think that a lot of our skills and traits and abilities would, would map quite closely to single genes, that there would be such a thing as like an intelligence gene even, or a running gene. And people looked for those things. And they looked and looked and looked. And we've we spent a long, many, many studies looking for these things that by doing correlations with people and you know genetic studies. And what we found is we have found many genes which look to be related to, say, intelligence or running ability or singing ability. And I, I talk about all of these in the book. But the key point is we found many genes, many, many, many. So for intelligence, for example, there are hundreds of genes that are linked to intelligence. And every each gene itself and each variant of that gene only has, you know, a 0.5 percent only adds about 0.5% of, of an increase in, in IQ, say, to, to the overall trait. So, you know, it's not like you have to have that one gene and you're going to become super smart. You know, you need to have, have lots of those. And that means that at least for sci-fi thinking about engineering those traits into ourselves, it's not going to be possible for the foreseeable future because there's just so many genes that are involved in these traits. So in, in complex traits, and they're the ones we're, we're all interested in, in complex traits, there are many more genes involved than, than we once thought. And even some relatively simple traits like eye color, um, that turn out to be more genes than we thought. There are some things that still have the kind of old fashioned one gene causes it. Um, and they tend to be a few kinds of diseases that we know about. So cystic fibrosis, early onset Alzheimer's, some diseases like that have, if you have the gene for that, then you're almost certainly going to get the disease. But for most complex traits and for the sorts of success outcome things that we're interested in, they're very complex and there's a, there's a lot of genes involved in how the, that trait turns out in, as you grow up. So in, in short, there's a, the, we know that there is a big genetic component to these things, but that it's very complicated. And help me understand and help some of the listeners understand how does epigenetics play into this and what exactly is epigenetics? Right. Well, epigenetics is a way of modifying how genes turn on and off. So it doesn't change the, the sequence of genes that you have that you've inherited from your mother and father. But what happens is some genes can get turned on and off according to epigenetics. And that's like a little marker that gets stuck onto the sequence of, of your genetic code. And so you can think of it like an on-off on switch and saying, you know, produce more of this gene or produce less of, of this gene. And, and maybe another way of thinking of it is like a, a volume switch. You know, you can you can dial up the volume on, on one gene and cause it to create more of its product or dial it down and it, and it will create less. So things that happen to you from the moment you're conceived, so from, from when you're in the womb and from as you're growing up and in your everyday life, things like, you know, did your mother smoke when you were a ba when you were in the womb or did you smoke when you were a kid, say, before puberty? These things can have effects on, on your genes by, by causing uh, the, like the volume switch to be dialed up or down. Your diet affects the epigenetics too. So, I mean, what we're understanding from this is that the genes that you have are, are by no means the, you can't tell everything that's going to happen about your phenotype. So the, your traits, your, your height, you know, the way you behave, all of those sorts of things, just from gene sequence alone. You've got to look at the, the epigenetics as well, the way the genes are turned on and off. 
So the idea is that you might start or have a certain array of genetic traits, but the environment and your upbringing, the actions and things around you, diet, etc., all have a serious impact on which genes are activated, which genes maybe have the volume turned up, and which genes may not activate at all. That's right. But I, I think that whilst we, we definitely should consider epigenetics, I think more important is whether you have that, that gene or not in the first place. So, you know, if you don't have the right genes, say, for are going to help you in endurance running, then it doesn't matter if you're going to dial them up or down, then the, the right ones aren't there. So I think, you know, we've we got to think of the genetics is, is, is a very, very complicated thing. But so just to simplify it down, I think it just makes a bit more sense to think about the, the sort of underlying genetics that we're working with, and then perhaps worry about their epigenetics afterwards. So how does this factor into the traditional understanding or idea of nature versus nurture? Well, characterize that is, is it, you've just described exactly what the, the common way of uh, talking about development and ability is, which is you've put nature against nurture. It's always called nature versus nurture when we, we have this conversation. But if there's one thing I, I'd like people to take away from this conversation today is that, that that's a false, a false kind of fight between by putting them against each other. Um, it's never nature versus nurture. It's always both of those things, right? It's all, nature is the genes that you're born with and the, and the epigenetic sort of markers that are put on there. Nurture is the environment you grow up in, which actually will include that, that epigenetic influence. But it's the, you know, the way you grow up, the school you go to, the diet you eat and so on. But you can't have one of those things in isolation. And it's people have often tried to emphasize that, that nature, uh, sorry, that nurture is the more important one. And certainly it's the one we can do more about, right? Because we, we can't do much about the genes we've got. But I think people have tended to deny the importance of the nature side of things. And from huge amount of research that I've done and I've looked into uh, during the, the reporting and writing of this book, I found that, that actually there's, there's a lot of information and a lot of evidence that suggests the nature side of things is, is more important than we thought. So that's not, again, let me emphasize, it's not to say it's more important than the nurture, but you've got to consider both these things if you want to understand properly um, how things like expertise develop, how, how the human body develops and how our traits and personality and our abilities, how they all develop. Tell me more about the robustness of this science. Sure. So for something like intelligence, this has been very controversial because the measurement of intelligence itself has been controversial. And then if you start thinking about the genetics of intelligence, you can just imagine, yeah, that's, you know, you're, you're stirring a pot that's um, very can be very controversial. But that putting that aside, what we're finding from uh, genetic studies is that about 50% of our intelligence seems to be seems to come from genetics. So there's a big component about half of the, the variance in how intelligent we are is genetic. And actually that for many complex traits, like intelligence is a complex trait, for many complex traits like that, um, it's a good rule of thumb, and they found that about half of the variance in in the ability in in some trait is is genetic. And this comes from from many, many studies now. Many, many genetic studies have found this. So yeah, I think it's it's actually very robust that that there's a genetic, a strong genetic component to these things. But again, that doesn't mean that there's a single gene or even a few genes that correspond to giving us the, those traits. There, again, there are many different genes. 
but there is a, a strong genetic component. And in Superhuman, you you reference and write about a lot of these studies. Many of them are meta-analyses with rather large data sets. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And why is that important? Well, early studies will take, when we weren't able to, to do genetic testing in a more widespread way, data sets were pretty small. So we could only look at, you know, maybe only a few hundred uh, samples of people and, and look at how there might be some genetic correlation. So it meant that any conclusion we would draw would have to be caveated with the understanding that there's pretty small sample. But as and genetic testing has got cheaper and got more widespread. Data sets have just got bigger and bigger and bigger. So the, the robustness and the reliability of, of our studies has, has increased. And by doing a meta-analysis, it means what that means is you can take separate individual studies from different places and, and pull them together and have a look at, at the bigger picture of what they all say. So that means you can really increase your, the size of, of the sample you're looking at and try to get some really more robust idea about what might be going on underneath it all. So I want to dig into a couple of the topics that you break down in the book and, and explore these a little bit more deeply. You touched on intelligence and talked a little bit about that. Tell me about some of the research you did on memory. Yeah, memory is a really interesting one because we've just been talking about the role of genetics and, and I've been saying how I think to be the best in the world, you, you do need a, a kind of genetic leg up in most cases. But for memory, actually, I think that that's one of the few traits where you can increase your memory in a certain way. Pretty much anyone can do it. You or me could do it if we want to. Um, so that for a particular type of, of, of memory, and that is learning a list of things, like a long list of, of items or a number. And the number that I looked at was pi. For learning a, a long number or list like this, there are techniques that anyone can learn, and you've just got to apply yourself and and and, and learn it. Um, and one guy I spoke to used this technique. It's called the Memory Palace technique, and he learned pi to one hundred thousand digits. And it, it took him something like nine hours to recite them all. And the method is that you create a story, you create a really memorable narrative, that, and then you learn the story. And each word in the story corresponds to a number, in his case, the, you know, the number of pi. So the way to remember the number is you tell yourself the story and you convert back the words into the numbers, and, and that's how you remember it. So that is a specific form of extraordinary memory. And this guy, you know, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for, you know, the, for memorizing the longest, longest amount of pi. But does it help you in day to day life? You know, remembering if you've got if you've got a French lesson and you've got to revise or you've got some physics exam and you've got to learn a whole load of stuff. It doesn't actually help. <laughs> you know, so that just helps train a, a particular kind of memory. So that's interesting. There's other kinds of memory, but it's hard to know how to kind of proactively train your your mind so that you, you would suddenly have a, a greater memory for just anything you encounter. Did you come across any strategies other than using visual spatial memory and memory palaces and those kinds of things that you could use to train the your working memory or things like that? I didn't come. I can't remember any offhand. I think there, there might be one or two things that I've mentioned in the book, but the, the most reliable way of doing it is the memory palace. And you can kind of adapt it to your everyday life to a certain extent. But I think that if you people, some people say, you know, I've got a lousy memory. There are a few things you can do to try and, and, and help that. 
But I mean, memory is something that's quite closely linked to IQ. So there's not so much you can do to boost your sort of working memory capacity. If you know, you can do a little bit of, of tweaking around and, and playing with with tricks like Memory Palace. But but overall, it's probably you know you're you're probably stuck with what you what you've got at the moment. Tell me a little bit about what you discovered around focus and and the story of Ellen MacArthur. Mm, yes, yeah, so Ellen MacArthur is a yachtswoman, and I think it was about ten years ago or so she she won the world record for sailing around the world single-handed, and she did it in the fastest time. Uh, well, obviously she'd won the world record, right? So. Um, but what was interesting about her was she did it because she'd, she'd had a goal. She was able to do this because she'd had a goal and she'd focused on that goal. And not just during the, the sailing itself. I mean, it was so intense that she said she had to sleep with the ropes of the yacht in her hand in case, you know, the wind blew up and she had to suddenly wake up and, and steer the boat because otherwise it would capsize and she, she'd die because she was on her own in the middle of the ocean. So, you know, you can imagine for, I think it was like nearly three months it took her and she was on her own the entire time, just getting small amounts of sleep all that time. You, you need incredible focus in the moment as you're doing it. But one of the reasons I think she succeeded is that she'd had a long-term focus as well. So what happened was when she was four years old, she went on a, a on a boat trip with her auntie and she came home afterwards and she said to her mother and father, hey, I, I went on a boat today. I had the most amazing time. I want to sail around the world when I'm older. And her mum and dad said, yeah, OK, right now, you know, now run along. But from when she was four, she decided that's what she's going to do. And she focused on that. And then she started kind of organizing her life so that she could achieve this goal of sailing around the world. So she saved all her pocket money, she did jobs, and she she didn't spend any money so that she could just save as much as she could until she had enough money to buy her own tiny little boat so she could learn to sail. And piece by piece, she did enough to reach her goal. And when she did it, you know, when she got there to be actually racing around the world on her own, because she was doing something she'd worked her entire life to do, that was that got her through that those sleepless nights, night after night, and the loneliness and the hard work. And having that focus on a that that laser focus on a goal was was critically important for her. So I think that's um, that's something that we can really all learn a lot from. Now, we may not all be lucky enough to just understand what our goal is and to desire something as strongly as she did, and certainly not from the age of four, right? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that, that she had, she understood something so clearly at the age of four. I mean, it, it takes most of us years before we understand we want something or we, we understand a goal. But but we can still construct goals for ourselves and we might not want them with as much passion and drive as, as she did. But then generally, they're probably not going to be as, as challenging as sailing around the world on your own. So the, the take home message is if you can construct yourself a goal and do things to get towards it, even in an incremental way, that's going to be hugely important. It gives you it gives you something to focus on and focus is, is really important at all these different levels. So the day-to-day -day focus and long-term goal focus. What was some of the science that you uncovered around how to create more focus? Sure. Well, I spoke to a neuroscientist who's also a lifelong um, meditation kind of guru guy. And he told me a lot about how the brain changes after meditation and not, not just after like one session of it. But after like extensive meditation, various areas of the brain change. 
And they all tend to be related to making the brain work more efficiently. And this has also been tested a lot of times. And, and you mentioned uh, meta-analyses. Um, he published a big meta-analysis of studies of meditation and, and brain, brain studies. And they've basically found that your brain gets a boost after meditation. After If meditation becomes a habit, your brain structures change subtly and the brain becomes more efficient. Cognitive, your cognitive ability improves. So the brain works better. It works more efficiently. Um, you do things without, with less stress, with less prevarication. And there's, there's a lot to be said from putting a, like a daily meditative practice into your life. And many people talk about this now, but, and, and there is a lot of, so it may be, you know, we may have a little while ago thought, oh, that's for hippies, you know, going off and meditating. But there's a lot to be said if, about it from a, just from a hard science point of view. Um, you know, it may be easy to make jokes about it, but it really focuses the mind, it changes the brain, brain structure, um, and it has great benefits. And a lot of people swear by it. You know, it's funny, probably the single most recommended strategy across our entire podcast is is meditation. Oh, really? Yeah, I can really understand it. I think there's a huge amount to be said for it. And it doesn't have to be onerous, doesn't have to be hard work. It can be something you can introduce into your day very easily. And I think anyone will see benefits from it. And, and what's interesting is, so this guy I spoke to, the neuroscientist, he first noticed it because he was a long distance runner when he was in high school. And he noticed that his meditative practice as a schoolboy um, helped his running. So at first, I, I didn't really imagine meditation helping in a, in, in a physical side of things like that, but it does. So I think it, it can help creatively and it can help in your work, in your day-to-day -day work, but it can also have a physical physical effect as well. It helps you get into flow, um, this, this kind of mysterious but very cool way of, of working where your, your, your brain is just re really efficiently get, getting into the swing of things. So, so yeah, I'm really not surprised that, that you, you hear about this a lot on your show. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hiring the right person takes time time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Another topic you wrote about that I found fascinating and doesn't, I feel like, come up frequently in the performance and self-improvement literature was bravery. I'd love to hear what you uncovered. Yeah. Well, I guess when I went into that, I just thought, okay, I mean, the book's called Superhuman, and I wanted to look at people who'd done extraordinary things on a, on a whole range of different traits and abilities. So bravery seemed to me like, well, that's a real superhero trait, bravery. Let's look at it. Let's look at what the science of, of bravery is. And I very quickly realized, which anyone would if you start thinking about it for, you know, for more than a minute, the bravery comes in in lots of different forms. So there's the kind of bravery where you might see someone drowning and you don't know who they are, but hey, someone's drowning there. And, and sometimes people will just rush out into the ocean and, and risk their lives and, and save someone. There's, there's, so that's a particular kind of bravery. Then there's a bravery where you might do things, you know, you might run into a, into your back into your, your house to, to rescue your family, a burning house to rescue your, your own family. Now, that's still brave, but it's family. So there's, you can understand in another way why you might do that. There's a kind of maternal bravery. And then there's bravery in the face of something that's a kind of a constant threat that you know you're going to have to kind of grit your teeth and do something. So there's all these different kinds of bravery and there's all sorts of different things going on in the brain. There's, there's the things going on in, in the amygdala, which is the part of the brain where, where fear is processed. So I looked at a few examples. I spoke to people who'd been exceptionally brave and tried to understand, like, where, where did this come from? How did you manage to be brave by, in, in what you did? And then I spoke to scientists about what is bravery and, and, and how can we perhaps um, increase it in, the, in, in ourselves? So it all really depends on, on the kind of bravery we're talking about. I think and one other way, another interesting thing about 
is that it's it's opposite is is fear and extraordinary fear and can can often lead to extraordinary stress and and sometimes post traumatic stress disorder which is a, a growing problem so to understand how bravery works and how fear works can help help treat some problems when we have when it goes wrong you know when we get this terrible stress response so yeah the, you know in a nutshell there's lots of different kinds of bravery and there's a lot going on on in the brain underneath it all. I want to dig into some of the lessons and ideas that you shared around PTSD because I thought that was a really fascinating discussion in the book. But before we do, I want to come back to this idea of, of what did you discover that some scientists say around how we can increase bravery in ourselves? Well, one way is to, is to try and, and rationalize it out. So you can think about, you can try and think statistically how, you know, the thing you're facing is, is unlikely and it's a, it's a kind of irrational fear and you can try and, and, and kind of talk your way through it in that way. Or it's to try and dilute the fear. You can, or, or, or kind of, um, in a way, dilute the, increase the bravery by, by kind of sucking it up from other people. So this is what the military do. They create small groups of people who work together to support each other. And so, you know, you've heard of the phrase band of brothers. Um, what the military does is create small bands of brothers that tr kind of tricks the brain into literally thinking that the people you're with are your kin, so that you're willing to do more for them than you would do for a total stranger because you feel so close to them. So we talk about that a lot in the military, or the military uses this, but it's also quite interesting to think for the rest of us who work in teams. You know, we all, we almost all of us work in a, in an office. We work with a group of people. There, you know, we band together, and you know, we're not going to be asked to to go to war or do anything incredibly dangerous. But so it's interesting to think about the group dynamic, um, the way the military does, and to think about how it's how it binds us together and how we can work together in a more profitable way together uh, by understanding that. One of the most interesting military examples that you shared in that chapter was the the Navy SEALs and, and how they drown-proof people. Tell me about that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's really extraordinary. Yeah, the drown-proofing is so they tie your legs together and your arms together and you have to swim like 100 meters. And obviously, you can imagine, I've actually tried to do this. I haven't tied myself together. But since learning about this, I've, you know, been in a pool and, and try it next time, like cross your legs and like hold your hands behind your back and then just try and swim. And you have to kind of just buckle your body and try and swim. It's incredibly hard and to, to do it for 100 meters. It, you can imagine how difficult it would be, but that's what Navy SEALs have to do. And the reason is, is you can imagine there can be situations where you may be captured and tied up, get the chance to escape or you're chucked overboard or something. And you, there may be situations where you, you have to try and swim, but your arms and legs are, are tied. And if you've had the experience of doing this in training, then you will be slightly less scared when it happens for real. So this is why the military put personnel through this kind of training. And that's really extreme. But this kind of principle happens in training all over the place. If you look at in airliners, right, the cabin crew undergo a lot of training, um, emergency training in case the aircraft goes down or there's a fire or something. So on the very rare occasions where those happen, where those things happen, we often hear reports that, you know, all the passengers are screaming and panicking, but the, the cabin crew just very, very calmly click into action. They know what to do. They guide people out. They follow the protocol. And that's because it's been tra they've trained it over and over again. 
and they're able just to follow their training. You often hear people say the training kicked in. You hear this in many from many different professions. When a disaster happens, when someone's really brave, they get interviewed on TV and you often hear the phrase, yeah, the training kicked in. And that's not to sort of denigrate their bravery and, you know, they, they were brave. But the reason they were able to show this kind of bravery and to perform these actions is because they've trained it. And so their brains already have somewhere to go and they know what to do kind of unconsciously uh, and they can click into this pathway and, and, and get the job done. Whereas the rest of us, if we're, if we're thrown into, a, into a, a river with our arms and legs tied, we're going to drown. Or if we're in, in some unexpected situation we, we haven't trained for, we're going to just freeze. We're not, not going to know what to do. But this is why training is, is critically important in kind of facilitating bravery in those situations. And this gets at, and in many ways comes back to touching on PTSD as well, but something really important and underappreciated in today's world, which, which underscores many of these ideas, is the importance of exposure therapy. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a similar sort of thing. It's like getting people experience of the thing that's, that's frightening. And and, and just gradually training them and getting them used to the to it and overcoming the fear. And as you say, this is something that's used in in PTSD. So uh, I think the typical one is I think you know some some veterans say they they can't go it they can't drive a car anymore because like the noise of a, a car door closing it reminds them of a gunshot or something. So the way this is treated is is by using exposure therapy very gradually. Like they may be just shown images of cars. And that's it for one session. Then they, you may go to a parking lot, you see cars, and that's it. And, and you just gradually build up and you expose the, the person to it just a bit more each time. And, and you build up a, a kind of reservoir of, of a protective reservoir that helps them get over the, the fear to whatever it is. So, yeah, that is what, one way that the PTSD is treated and one way that you can store up a, a protective protective element against uh, for bravery. When you study world-class performance, you often come across this idea that exposure therapy or discomfort as a tool to overcome fear in tough situations. And yet I feel like so many people's response to negative stimulus is often to try and hide or minimize it or, or move away from it. Sure. I mean, that is the, the, our immediate response will be to move away from it. I did read about one, uh, I talk about it in the book, like there's one extraordinary um, study that some neuroscientists did and they got people who were scared of snakes. So uh, their normal response would be like, you know, move, move the hell away from that snake, you know. Um, what they did was put them in a MRI brain scanner and have next to the brain scanner like a conveyor belt with a, a live snake on it. And inside the brain scanner, the, the people were able to move a little lever that would move the conveyor belt back or forward. And they were told, right, now try and bring the snake closer towards your head. And as they, so the ones who made the, the decision to, to basically to be brave and to move the snake closer towards them, you could look at what's going on in the brain and find out what's happening. And then like, that was a, that's how they defined what, what courage was because they were working in a way that opposed what they naturally were inclined to do. So naturally inclined to 
to move the snake away, but they worked in a way to oppose that and brought the snake closer. And by doing that, they could you can find out, well, what's happening in the brain when you actively show bravery? And they found, basically, they found a couple of bits in the brain that were more active during that time. So we can start to understand what's happening um, when you actively show bravery, what's happening in the brain. And that might give us a, a way of then tapping into that in the future and and kind of being able to maybe induce bravery. We're jumping around a little bit, but this is another topic that I found so fascinating and something that's been of interest to me for a long time. Tell me about the work that you uncovered around the power of lucid dreaming. Yeah, this is really extraordinary. So as you know, lucid dreaming is when you are asleep but and you're dreaming, but you become aware that you're dreaming and that you're asleep, but, but you don't wake up. So I don't know, many people have had some kind of experience of this. Um, it might then happen that you fall back into a deeper sleep or, or you wake up. But some people are able to then control that period of the sleep cycle where they're, where they're asleep and dreaming but are in control. And, and then they can um, control it so well that you can start to use it. So, and people can, ex you can exploit this. So there's some extraordinary studies done by people who go into lucid dreams. What, because what you can do is you're, you go to sleep, you're, you're being watched through remote cameras by the scientists in an outside room, you know, they're watching in on you. When you're, when you go into a lucid dream, you've prearranged with the scientists that you're going to move your eyes in a certain, like, pattern underneath your eyelids but whilst you're asleep and that will signal to them that okay i'm in a lucid dream now and then you can do something for example the, the scientists have, have played played like tones of music that correspond to mathematical sums so you might say like give them five plus three by playing notes of music and then this person asleep has to count make the calculation in their in their dream and signal back by moving their eyes what the answer is so that's quite a mundane and, or weird thing to do when you when you're asleep but it just shows that you are able to communicate with the waking world from the sleeping world and then they've started doing some more ambitious things so one scientist i spoke to got a load of lucid dreamers in the lab taught them this game of darts um so it wasn't a typical game of darts it was a particular game they had to throw the throw the dart at the board in a certain way and everyone practiced it in the evening before they went to bed and they all went to bed in the sleep lab and some of them were able to go into lucid dreams and when they were in the dream when they were in the lucid dream they dreamt into existence a, a dartboard and the darts and they started throwing the darts and practicing the game that they'd been they'd learned just a few hours before when they were awake and then the next day when they all woke up they were all tested again in the real world in the waking world and the ones who had been able to practice overnight in their dreams had higher scores than the ones who just had regular nights sleep so the idea that you can practice in your dream um is is starting to take hold and then as i looked into this more i found some stories from snowboarders and from performance divers who've been trying to do a new trick. It may be on a snowboard jump and they're trying a trick. It's something they can't do in the real world. But when they go into a lucid dream, they, what they say is they slow time down so that they're able to make the turn, make the spin, pull off the trick and, and land. And they practice it like that in their dreams because it's danger free. They can happily practice it. And then in real life, they can go on the slopes and, and, and do the jump for real. And it gives them more confidence. Other people I've spoken to practice languages that they are learning in their dream. And they don't have any of this sort of social fear about sounding stupid because you can't you can't remember the right word or you can't get the accent right. 
So the idea that you can kind of use your dreams or use your lucid dreams in this way is amazing. So how can we begin to tap into that and train ourselves or or start to lucid dream? Well, yeah, for the rest of us who don't naturally lucid dream, there are quite a few ways of, of inducing lucidity in the rest of us. So there are ways of doing it just by, by practice. But there's also things you can buy now, like little headsets that will detect when you're in REM sleep. So when you're in regular dream sleep, and there's ways that the, these little headsets you wear will sort of um, play play flashlights through your eyelids, like just gently. And it's an, a way of bringing on lucidity. So it won't be enough to wake you up, but it will just be enough to bring you into lucidity. I want to come back and, and look at the broader context of, of the various things that we've talked about. When you think about the genetic component of whether it's intelligence or focus or any of these abilities, how do you contextualize that within an understanding of performance and achievement in, in our own lives? And for each of the listeners, you know, if for someone who's not born with the top 1% of ability that can help them become a world champion, whether it's a chess player or singer or whatever it might be, how do you recommend or think about they view practice and performance and achievement? I think one thing that I've really taken from this is that think about, we touched on this when we were think, talking about focus, is think about why you're doing what you're doing. And um, do you have a goal? Um, what is that goal? What are the reasons for, for you setting that goal? Many of the people I've spoken to who are at the top of their game, for whatever trait it is, one thing they all had in common is a deep love of the thing they did. So for the rest of us, like that just translates into, are we doing this for the right reasons? Are we trying to be, if we're trying to improve ourselves in some way, is it something we, we really love doing? And I found one amazing study about in athletics. And the scientists there had looked at a whole group of athletes who had gone to the Olympics. So any athlete who gets to the Olympic Games is already world-class athlete. But what the scientists did then was separate them out, the ones who'd just merely gone qualified for the Olympics and those who'd won medals at the Olympics. And if you then look at work and practice pattern of these two groups of people are, it turns out that the ones who achieve medals had specialized in their sport at a later stage, at a later stage than the ones who had just merely managed to get to the Olympics. And not only that, but they'd done many other different kinds of sport when they were kids and when they're growing up and perhaps still now. So in other words, they, they kind of cross-trained, they did different things and they found, they specialized later. And that's because they found the thing that they were not only best at physically, but more suited to mentally. So it meant they were able to find the thing they were best at in, in multiple ways. And by doing different things, you stay stronger. And the, this, this kind of cross-training benefits um, kind of move across and help you in, in the sport that you've ended up doing. So that was at the Olympics. But the same thing actually applies in, in other fields as well. So this, this kind of cross-training, non-specializing, don't specialize too early, that, that kind of mantra applies, I think, to, to even non-athletes as well. And one way I, I talk about it is think of it like the, the Goldilocks principle. Try different things until you find the one that just suits you perfectly well. So for listeners who want to concretely implement some of the ideas we've talked about today, what would be an action item or a piece of homework that you would give them to execute on some of these ideas? I think you certainly need to practice um, whatever you've decided to, you want to improve yourself in. 
um, I would make sure you're practicing in a, in a correct way, in a directed way that's going to improve yourself. Um, if you possibly can, check the science behind what you're doing. I mean, there's a lot of hocus pocus out there. There's a lot of sort of advice given that um, may well sound um, encouraging and beneficial, but I would always try to check out the, what's, what's the science underlying um, what you're doing to make sure that you're going to do something that's going to be really beneficial. And for listeners who want to find you and, and your work online, what's the best place for them to do that? I guess on Twitter, I'm always there, at Rohoop on Twitter. All the stuff we talked about is in the book. There's this huge amount there. That's the first starting point, and then see what I'm doing on Twitter. Well, Rowan, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this knowledge and wisdom. You took an incredible journey across a number of different fields of human performance and some really interesting insights. Thanks, Matt. Great to chat with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. 
Do more with Viator.